0: Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Creative Industry Insight podcast, a podcast that takes a look at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Naomi as she gave some insight into hair and makeup design. Today's guest, Ash Gadvi, a member of Candle Corner and an astute environmental and clearance coordinator. His credits include 1917, Artemis Fowl and Beauty and the Beast. So make yourself comfortable as we jump into the conversation with Ash.
1: How are you today, Ash? I'm alright, Rob. I'm alright. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Uh, hot weather makes a lot of difference. Uh, basically being living in linen shirts and sitting in the sun. And that's about it,
1: really. What else can you do, really, I, at this time, <laughs> apart from that? Pretty much,
0: pretty much. But it's important just to sort of make the most of the time and sort of relax and even though you should worry about what's going on but it's also out of your hands
1: a bit. the thing is I think you should worry about what's going on but at the same time I think there is a certain degree of just like kind of putting it at the back of your mind that you need to do as well just to stay a little bit sane like I don't watch the news or anything like that I like before the whole pandemic happened I was the kind of guy who was like listening to news podcasts all the time I was like listening to like political podcasts all the time. Now, since all of this has happened, I honestly just have to shut myself away from all of that. Otherwise, I will just end up going mad.
0: No, fair enough. It's just, you know, stay vigilant, wash your hands, sing happy birthday, and just make sure you look after yourself, really. Or exactly. Or look after the people exactly. that you're looking after as well. You keep your two meters. So let's get into this. I asked the audience to close their eyes. Let's take it back 2016. Potentially the tail end of 2015, dependent on when you start at your first job. You walk into the production office, you see your desk, there's your sign that says Ash, environmental runner. What are your first thoughts about what you've got yourself
1: into? Well, I mean, my first first thoughts on that is that I would have loved to have had a desk (laughs) in the production office. (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) So, yeah, um, I'm probably going to be the weirdest person you'll speak to on this podcast, I think, because my route has been such an odd one. The jobs I've done have been such strange ones. But so I think I think I will be like the strangest story you'll probably hear. But um, yeah, my first film, I was an environmental assistant, which I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't really know it was a thing in the film industry until I saw the job advertised on a on a website i applied for it and kind of did an interview and then ended up getting the job which is like the one way that you never get a job in the film industry and i suppose like the the bookend to you know the the start of that story is really that i had studied film and tv at uni i did a masters in documentary filmmaking always knew that i wanted to work in feature films but i just never knew how to get in and so I suppose my my life had kind of come to a point where I started planning on what I could do outside of that because I thought I thought well, there's no way I'm ever going to get in. And now when I work in the film industry, I see so many youngsters who are like 18, 19, 20 years old and stuff like that. I started my first job when I was 29. Um, when I did when really? I did my first job, I think yeah, I think I was like 20, 29. And so yeah, my first job was environmental assistant, and I did an interview. And all that my boss at the time told me that the job was, was that she said, this isn't the glamorous part of the film industry. And so I kind of had had an inkling from that, that this isn't going to be, you know, this isn't going to be a fun job. Having said that though, I suppose that first job, like I was so daunted my first few days because not only was it an entirely new industry to me, but also it was an entirely new job. I didn't, I didn't know what the job was. So I was kind of creating it as I was going along really because the environmental department within the film feature film industry hadn't actually been around for that long so we were kind of also just figuring it out as we went along and yeah my boss at the time she kind of had had her routine she'd done like one or two films as well by that point as an environmental coordinator so I was just kind of riding on the tailcoats of her just figuring out what I should do And little did I know that the majority of the job, what it actually meant was that I'd be handling a lot of food waste, (laughs) which is pretty much what that first job ended up being. Food waste, recycling, uh, you know, swapping out bins and stuff like that, making sure things get sorted into the correct bins. But this is going to sound so cliche and it's going to sound so ridiculous saying it. But you know what? It's like just hard graft kind of paid off. Because what I did was that, you know, within the first few days, I realized that this is going to, this is not a good job here. I'm, I'm going to struggle with this. But then after a while, I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to graft harder than everybody else in this position. And I'm just going to make sure that I do this, not just to the best of my ability, but just to make sure that I do it better than, than anybody else has done, really.
0: How big was the team? Was it a coordinator, yourself, and how many
1: others? Or was it just you two? That, that's it. That's it. Me and, Me and a coordinator. Uh, do, you,
0: do you think because you were slightly older starting out, rather than uh, somebody who's just fresh face out of uni, did you feel that like you're, because you said after a couple of days you thought you are going to struggle? But do you think because you had a lot more experience in life than you know than say somebody who's a lot younger, did that sort of help you more to get through those sort of,
1: path of first couple of days? And what- quick quick answer: yes basically yes because I I, like I said I struggled to get into the film industry for so many years didn't have any family in the industry didn't have any you know friends who could get me in and it was a tough it was a tough industry to get into not you know at at the best of times it's a tough industry to get into even now it's a tough industry to get into but I suppose for myself being um, being an Asian guy as well I suppose like we'll, we'll get get talking about that stuff a little bit later but being an Asian guy, you know, it's not, it's not the easiest industry to get into. Uh, at the time, it wasn't the easiest industry to get into in terms of diversity either. So it was, it, it basically was my age, really, because at that point, I kind of just thought I've finally been given this opportunity. And so I'm just, I'm not going to let it go. And I'm just going to do it to the best of my ability and just to make sure that I stay here, really.
0: I know you said that it's your first job and you didn't want the opportunity to pass. Did you feel it's slightly daunting that you being older than people who might be, uh, you know, above you in the rankings? Did that ever slightly, not put you off, but do you think it's a little bit more differently?
1: It, it can do that. I think it definitely can do that. There were times when I was a bit like, you know, everybody around me is like 20, 21 years old, especially when, when you're working environmental. Um, the other people around you, the other departments and stuff are mostly like locations guys, locations assistants and stuff. Uh, the locations assistants were all like early 20s and my coordinator gosh I'm trying to remember like how I, I can't remember what her age is to be honest but I don't think there's even that much of an age gap between us um, so like myself and my coordinator who are obviously you know di- different in terms of our our rank and stuff but age-wise we weren't all that different but you know I never really let that bother me I never really ever let that get to me I just kind of thought well you know the situation just is what it is I think also um what helped in that situation is kind of just like your life outlook really whereas you know I've kind of just always believed that everybody has their own path and everybody goes on their own path and everybody works at their own uh speed you know some people some people are Usain Bolt and some people are Mo Farah do you know what I mean it's like everybody (laughs) kind of just goes at their own pace so I kind of just thought, well, I've got my uh, break in the industry at the age of 29. Everybody else got theirs at 21, but whatever, you know, that's just my story compared to theirs. It doesn't mean that I'm better than them. It doesn't mean that I'm worse than them. It just means that we're different.
0: Very, uh, very deep. I love that. Going back to your sort of role in the first first job, you said you were doing food wastes, changing bins. And what was the last one? Was it materials?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was basically, uh, food, food waste was the, was the biggest one that we kind of had to deal with. Um, so we had a company that would uh, compost food waste. So I had to make sure that all of the food waste was going into compostable bins. We had like compostable cutlery and stuff like that. So again, had to make sure that was all in the right bin. Then there was like sorting out of actually waste that was in the stages for recycling, paper, cardboard, plastics, recycling. And then the other, the other big one really was water. Because water was a new thing that was starting to you know being looked at in a more sustainable way whereas before beforehand and this even goes back to some of the short films that i worked on really early in my career um you'd find uh plastic water bottles in the cases and stuff like all over the all over the stages and you know people would open a bottle take a sip put it down forget where they left their bottle and then go and get a new one and over now you know all all of that type of thing that, yeah, yeah, that, that was like the norm, which is really weird. So water was another thing that was starting to be looked at in a sustainable way. So we had um, reusable bottles that we'd hand out to all of the crew, uh, have water stations within stages for them to go and fill up. And then it would be my job to, uh, to replenish the water stations, which we used like kind of big, big water bottles with pumps on the top and uh, water coolers and things like that. So yeah, that was primarily what the job was made up of.
0: What did you find most difficult getting people on board with this sort of idea of food waste uh, bins and sort of cutlery? And, and was there sort of discussions beforehand saying, like, guys, we need to have this done? Or was it just something that you basically had to police people and kind of walk around, try to sort of drill it into people and sort of sell them on the idea?
1: So so I suppose, like, my career in, in the environmental scene kind of started really at the turning point at that time because. Um, you had a lot of people who right at the start of my first job were just coming to grips with like the concept of working in a more sustainable way in the film industry and doing all of these things in a more sustainable way. So they'd have emails and stuff sent out with instructions saying exactly what we're trying to do, exactly what they can do to help, you know, use your reusable water bottle, throw your food waste in the compostable bin, all of that stuff. But, it's one thing to actually send an email out at the start of production when everybody is kind of gearing up for the shoot. And it's another thing when the shoot actually starts. Because once the shoot actually starts, everybody is hitting the ground running. And when everyone's hitting the ground running, you know, the sustainable stuff is literally the last thing on their mind. So when you'd actually be in that situation, you would find yourself having to Almost, you know, I don't want to use the term cleaning up after people, but I mean, you know, it's, it's there and thereabouts. So you'd be spending a lot of your time doing that and also just kind of talking to people and making sure that, you know, they kind of know what's what. But yeah, that was kind of at, the, at, at a crossroads really where the industry was starting to get more to grips with all of that stuff. Um, but obviously as it progressed later on down the line, then people got used to it and it became a norm. Like now, like the reusable water bottles and stuff, that's like a normal thing now is a standard thing on all films. Compostable boxes, cutlery and stuff is is a standard thing on all films. So everyone's pretty used to it by now, I would say.
0: When you're starting out, because there was a turn for the film industry to start being more environmentally friendly, was there any sort of organisations that had sort of guidelines for you guys to follow by? Or was it just show-by-show basis of like, no, we're going to do it like this way or we're going to do it that way?
1: So as far as my understanding is, I think that every film studio has a different way of doing things. And, uh, you know, per film studio, they'll have their own set of kind of rules and regulations that they'll need to follow. And then each studio has their way of basically being able to collate that data so that once you finish the shoot, they then use that data to actually show what they've done that is sustainable on that film. So we were taking our cues from the studio. Um, all of our regulations and stuff that were coming through were all from the studio. And that was also developing as time went by. Um, so that later on, when I actually ended up becoming an environmental coordinator, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get, get up to later on, the rules were changing by that point as well. And the regulations were kind of changing. So there, there are outside bodies uh, in the UK, places like Green Shoot and, and companies like that, that, that do look after sustainability on film sets and stuff. But at that point in time, we were taking our cues from, from the film studio.
0: Did they ever send out the sort of updated guidelines on what you should be doing or was it just yearly review or do you think they did it based on show by show review?
1: Yeah, I mean I, my understanding of it, well at the time they were doing it show by show and my understanding of it as time went by was that they would do like an end of year review of all the, all the shows that they did in that year. But that kind of that data and stuff is more handled by the the studio heads and stuff. So I wasn't actually all that privy to that information. And when I was starting out, they were dealing more with my with my boss at the time, anyway. So um, so I was just taking my cues from her, really, and she was the one who was kind of relaying all of the information that the studio were giving to her.
0: What was your biggest learning curve on your first job?
1: My my biggest learning curves were all the things that you never think will be big learning curves. <laughs> like, you know, because you think to yourself, oh, yeah, you got to do this, is this. Like, the most important thing is get comfortable shoes. I always say, like, to everyone, like, who works in the film industry, get comfortable shoes. Because especially if you've not got an office job, you are going to be on your feet a lot. And when you're on your feet a lot, it takes its toll on you a lot. My first day, I remember, it was absolutely lashing it down with rain and we were moving from stage to stage and stuff so i got absolutely drenched wasn't dressed in the right attire at all i think i just turned up in like i think on my first day i think i turned up in a shirt i was thinking, I
0: just picturing you turning up in like a suit and then it's just like
1: oh yeah like yeah 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 like that's how that's pretty much how it was i think i turned up in a shirt and trousers because i was just like well this is you know how you're supposed to dress in the film industry isn't it (laughs) but I remember a security guard uh, who we ended up becoming really good friends uh, on that film. He actually took one look at me from a distance and he said, "Look, to th- this weekend, go down to like any JD Sports or whatever, or like you know, Soccer World or whatever it might be." Um,
0: Soccer
1: World, wow. <laughs> yeah, and and he was just like, buy rainproof clothes, buy rainproof overalls, and. Comfortable hiking boots, and he was like, Don't be stingy, you are going to be wearing them day in, day out. And that exact weekend, I went out and bought all of that stuff. And like, I used it on every film, like after that, when I was working as an environmental coordinator or assistant, rather. Oh, dear, but yeah, it's always the funny. stuff that you never think you, you know that will ever be an issue that you end up being the biggest learning curves. Yeah, that is
0: always the case, jumping into something new you want to impress but then also in airquakes it's not like a normal office job where you have to turn up in your suit and everything like that it's, it's more more comfort and more practicality what was like the biggest fight as an environmental assistant with other departments so i can imagine construction because certain people have good relationships with suppliers when it comes to certain goods was there any other time where you had to basically say, no, you can't use this because
1: it's too damaging. Um, yeah, well, like in, 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 in the early easy. days, yeah, in the early days, my boss was getting into, um, into a lot of arguments with other departments. Even like over little things, like even like sound departments and camera departments, just getting them to use reusable batteries in the beginning was a real struggle because they had never used uh, reusable batteries before. So just getting them to change their ways was actually really difficult, which again, like... You know, simple things like just using reusable batteries are like a normal thing now with sound and uh, and camera departments. But in the beginning, it wasn't because you're dealing with people who have only ever done things one way. Same with construction, like using like poly and stuff like that. Uh, you know, in the beginning was always just the way that everybody had done things and then th- all of those things would end up in landfills. Again, that's changing slowly but surely. You know, my last uh, couple of films that I did, all of the sets were used from recycled materials which wasn't happening when I first started. And the biggest fights, I suppose, like, you know, this is, a, this is an odd thing to say, but I suppose the biggest fights were just, like, to be taken seriously as a, as a department as well because, like, I think everybody kind of got the feeling that it was, like, it's just a gimmick. Like, this is just a gimmick for, like, just to dot the T's and cross the I's and all of that type of thing. Did I just say dot the T's and cross the I's? I mean, dot the I's uh, and cross the T's. Uh, it's, yeah.
0: it's, on, it's on record now, so it's fine. No,
1: oh, so, Do you know what leave it in there it's natural. So uh, so yeah um, it, it was just one of those things like just to be taken seriously really. So yeah th- those were kind of the biggest the biggest fights that I had to I had to overcome. I remember there was this one grip for my first film kept calling me enviro boy throughout (laughs) throughout the whole film and it was that just the most patronizing thing ever every time i walk back you'd hear him just go enviro boy and i'd be like oh geez here we go again but yeah you you get used to that stick after a while you know what you shouldn't take it
0: you know it's bullying in the workplace and that's not you know it's very much frowned
1: upon i think he meant it as a term of endearment to be fair (laughs) but you know it is what it is. But that's the kind of thing like you look back at with quite fond memories now, oddly enough. Because, yeah, you kind of just think, yeah, damn, like, yeah, how I was starting out and how it was. and But th- that was the thing, like, you know, I go back to just like the hard graft of it, that as the film went on, everyone, like, would say to me, like, look, I don't know what it is about your job that you're doing, but I see you dragging around food bins all the time. I see you delivering water to stage all the time. I can, I can see that you're working bloody hard. So you know, it's just a case of, you know, other other departments like giving you that recognition, not so much because they understand what you're trying to do, but just understanding that, you know what, this guy actually is grafting away. So respect.
0: I think that's probably the best way to sort of go about it when you're starting a new job as well and show people that, you know, maybe boy, but I'll work hard, I come out
1: Yeah, and, uh, exactly. I'll make
0: sure I do everything correct. Just wanna go back as well because you're saying that you studied film and did a master's in documentary filmmaking. What did you do between the sort of finishing your master's to your first job? Was it just sort of the odd jobs whilst trying to get in? And what would you have done if you didn't get that first job? job Oh, After
1: I, yeah, after I finished uni, uh, my first job that I got was a work experience placement at BBC Sport. And you know, I, I didn't live that far away from White City. I live on the Central Line. So I just kind of thought, well, BBC is not that far away. So, you know, as it, as it is kind of the thing you do now after uni, as soon as it's over, you just send out uh, loads of applications and stuff. So I just sent out loads to the BBC. Back in the day, they used to have on their website, all of their work, exp- uh, work experience places. And they were based at Shepherd's Bush, uh, White City at the time. So... they're they're not there anymore obviously they've moved to Salford in Manchester now so this is obviously quite a while back that I'm talking about (laughs) but you know I I sent out loads of applications there and they uh BBC Sport was the only one that got back to me and I applied for like drama camera writing like just anything I could to just get my in and Sport was the one that got back to me and I've always been a big a big sports fan uh obviously you know anyone who who follows me on instagram knows that i i host my own cricket podcast as well and i think like even like you know me me you and uh sammy the other the other third of uh, of candle corner that you mentioned briefly um we talk about sports all the time and stuff so i was like oh this is this is pretty cool so i worked at bbc sport for a while i worked on match of the day oddly enough for quite a few years um this is the the time when it was like who was presenting that time? Alan Shearer was there. Alan Hansen, like Lee Dixon, oh, what like, are
0: you going back. You got Alan yeah,
1: Hansen? yeah, it was like all of, all of those guys were um, were hosting. So, I worked on Match of the Day for for quite a few years, but it was always just temp- temporary jobs. And then during the week, I would just work other temporary jobs in other other TV stuff. And it would it would always be sports TV. And actually, for a long time, I kind of thought, well, this is the direction that my career is going in. So where can it go through the sports TV route? And I kind of just thought to myself, well, that's, that's my career now. And that's where I'm going to go. Because, you know, I love sports and I love film. So this is kind of a little bit of both. But just as time went by, you know, you just, like I at least got this gut feeling in my stomach that I was like, you know, I know what I want to do. And this isn't what I want to do. And even though like, I was, you know, kind of getting places with the sports TV stuff, then you know, the BBC, BBC Sport all went off to Manchester. And so I was just like, look, I've got to make a decision there. Either I go to Manchester with them if the opportunity arises. And there were people at the time saying to me, you know, would you want to come to Manchester? So there was that. But then there was the other side of me going, you know, you've always wanted to work in films. Like it's your number one love and passion and stuff like that. Would you be happy working in sports TV? And I had a real, you know, dark night of the soul moment where I was kind of like you know, I, I, need to, I need to really get back to square one here that I've, I've done a lot of good stuff within the sports TV thing. I saw a lot of amazing things, went to a lot of amazing events, worked on like Wimbledon and Match of the Day and the Olympics and, you know, all of these incredible things that I saw. But deep down, I kind of knew that I'm a, I'm a film guy, man. And so, yeah, I, that's when I started to pursue the film side even more.
0: If they uh, offered you a job to cover the cricket, would you still have gone for the film route or would you just been like well oh, I don't know
1: well I mean cricket is my number one love in in life you know in, in particular the the Indian cricket team is is my my everything so do you know what that's that's a that's a good question I think a lot of people have asked me that in the past but you know I think that I just like being a fan I think I like being a fan, and I like doing my thing on my own podcast. I maybe wouldn't want to do it as a career. I think that's the that's the answer.
0: When you were getting interviewed for your first job as an environmental assistant, how how did it get sold to you, or was this just like you know what, this is going to be much my, my first opportunity? I'm just going to take it with, with two hands, run with it, and then whatever happens, happens.
1: Maybe, yeah, I mean that's that's how I was thinking about it. it. Was just like whatever this is, I'll just I'll just take it because this was an opportunity to work on a major major feature film, which, you know, was, was where I always wanted to be and what I always wanted to do. So I just kind of thought, whatever it is, I'll just, I'll just take it and make the most of it. The way it was sold to me, though, was my boss at the time, to be honest, I think even with her, she was still figuring out her role as the environmental coordinator. Because like I said, it was still quite new at the time. So with her, it was, you know, a case of like, we'll just figure it out together a little bit and so yeah we, we were kind of like a decent a decent little double team and we did we did three films together actually oddly enough me and her so yeah i mean that that's kind of how it was sold to me it was just like yeah this this is what the job is going to involve this is what we cover it's going to be on a, on this film do you do you want to do it and that was that was pretty much it did you already
0: have sort of uh, an environmental stance before you came onto the role or once the sort of grew into the role your Starts and environment
1: sort of changed? I think I was always very conscious about my own carbon footprint and it was always something that I was very interested in. I'm vegan, for example, I like, you know, drive, try to drive it as eco-friendly a car as possible. You know, I'm a minimalist. I try not to like buy too much fast fashion stuff just because, you know, I kind of keep one ear to the ground about, you know, the environment and what we can do to, to, to help the planet. And so, when I got the interview for this, I was like, well, this isn't something that I know nothing about. You know, if I got an interview saying like, this is, I don't know, a makeup assistant or something, like I'd be like, oh, I'm totally out of my depth there. But with with this, it was like, you know, I actually know a little bit about this. So I think maybe that's what might have given me that little bit of an edge um, over everybody else. I'm not sure. I've never actually asked, asked my boss at that time, like, why did you actually go with me? <laughs> I suppose I'd like to know the answer to that but I don't know uh, um,
0: sometimes you know those sort of questions are left best, <laughs> best not to, to know people. yeah you yeah know, it's true because sometimes it um, would be like you're the only one that applied and you're like
1: oh okay so yeah but, but exactly Was a lie. yeah it's true it's true um but yeah I mean that that was kind of uh kind of what my stance was at the time so I kind of knew that you know that I had a little bit of knowledge here but once I got into the job then I uh, and especially years down the line when I became an environmental coordinator, then the world of like the environmental scene within films really started to open up. And I had no idea that that was a thing. And at the moment now, it's obviously it's quite, quite a big deal now. So yeah, but yeah, that was my, that was my intro to like more environmental knowledge and the, the world of sustainability in films.
0: What do you mean by like the environmental scene in terms of for film? Like how how was this
1: gone? Sorry. So, for example, um, on on the last film I worked on, after the film had finished, it myself and one of the producers were invited onto uh, onto a panel at uh, the BSC, the British Society of Cinematographers, where they had like a whole panel talk about sustainability in film, and there'd be people from different organizing bodies, people from different companies, like. There were lighting guys, camera guys, grips guys, like we were all on the same panel and they were all coming to the talk from their different departments, but with the perspective of doing things as sustainably as possible. So the lighting guys now had switched to lights that were all sustainable. The grips guys were doing stuff that was all sustainable. And it was a case of me thinking like, you know, th- this is actually like a big deal now. Whereas, like before, like I said, like if people were just starting to get to grips with using a reusable water bottle, and they were you know—a lot of people weren't even behind that. But now it's like there are actual organisations. There's people like Albert, uh, who are who are with BAFTA, who do environmental certification for you know British TV and film and stuff. So it's it's actually like become a real thing now. It's become something that people actually keep their eye on and are aware about. And like I said, yeah, different organizations and companies who now get behind the concept. So at the time when I started, there wasn't really that, that level of awareness about it. But now it's like, it's a big deal.
0: How many jobs did you do as an environmental uh, assistant? And what was the process of you sort of getting promoted and moving up to being
1: coordinator? So environmental assistant, I did for three films. So there was uh, the first film, then there was a gap of a few and I think it was about about four or five months the gap was then so I did a few other uh, environmental assistant jobs just um, on a temporary basis on a couple of other films and then I joined up with my previous boss again for another two films after that which were pretty much back to back and those are the three films where that I did as an environmental uh, assistant and then uh, what happened was that the the studio that we were doing the films with wanted to do two films at the same time, both shooting in the UK. So uh, my boss basically called the studio and said, look, I think, I think Ash is ready to step up now uh, because these two films are going to be going on at the same time. So why doesn't, why doesn't he become coordinator of one? I'll be coordinator of the other and we'll just get two fresh new assistants who will be our assistants. And then you'll kind of have a have at least that way, have some form of uh, continuation of the the team that we had in the beginning that was doing such a good job on the first three films. So that's how I became a coordinator. And then obviously, uh, you know, I carried on doing, uh, you know, most of the things that she had taught me. And, uh, and then, yeah, just tried to add my own little spin on it.
0: Uh, what little spins did you add to it?
1: I mean, I came from the position of being an environmental assistant and then becoming a coordinator which is something that she actually never did um, because the job was such a fresh thing she came from an environmental background um, and then became a coordinator straight away so i don't know many other people there might be one or two around who were who went from being environmental assistants to then being promoted to coordinator but i kind of thought that that was quite a unique perspective for me to have because I know what it's like to be on the other end so I tried not to be an entirely office-based person I, I tried to basically continue to continue the role as like I suppose the best way to describe it was like in football sometimes you get like a player manager and like <laughs> I, I wanted to be a player manager basically was that I you know I do like all the organizing and all of that stuff uh, do the coordinator role. But I also wanted to be out on the on the floor, really, um, you know, putting the slide tackles. So, um, and then my assistant at the time as well, I kind of thought um, with him that, you know, maybe maybe you can, you know, learn a bit of the knowledge about what I'm doing as well. So that, you know, we're both almost like, you know, player managers. So, you know, that was the way I kind of went about it. Whereas when I was assistant, it was very much like, she was the coordinator and I was the assistant. She had, uh, you know, everything locked down in the office on the organising side. I had everything locked down out on the floor, but I kind of wanted to integrate that a little bit more when I became coordinator. When
0: uh, when you're coordinating, what sort of paperwork is involved in something like this? Do you have to fill out like a what every day or is it every week? And do you have to sort of highlight your concerns of what's going on and who does that get passed on to?
1: Yeah, so um, with the first studio that I was working for, at, at the end of the film, they have a calculating system basically where they take all the numbers from across the film and uh, punch it into like a system that that gives them all the data that they want. It gives them like you know all these fancy like pie charts and you know all all of that graphs and stuff to show them exactly what they're doing. I would get those numbers from uh, the accounts team which were on every film. The accounts team and the environmental team work quite closely together because they provide uh, you know, your carbon footprint tr- uh, tracker data. And so when you're tracking all of that data and you pass it on, you have to input it into the system so that when you come to the end of the film, you should in theory have a complete set of data that you can then input into their system to actually see where it is that you have made your gains compared to the last film. And as you're going along, as well, you can start to see certain areas where you think, oh, "Hang on, that's a bit, that's a bit too high there. We need to make a few changes here and stuff." So it's actually a really, really helpful resource.
0: When you're looking at sort of people's uh, environmental expenditure, should we say, uh, what was like the biggest thing that sort of stood up to you when it overspilled, where somebody had, where they've kind of gone over the threshold of where they should be?
1: Well, well, this is the thing because, like I said we were at a point where it was a little bit of a crossroad where all of this stuff was just starting to be implemented. So you would initially start to see certain areas where you think, hang on, like this is, this is a little bit, you know, this needs to change. But at the same time, you kind of think, well, what's, what's the alternative? Um, An example of that is uh, diesel generators. For example, diesel generators have been a thing on every film that I've worked on. So then, you know, I start asking myself, you know, the question of why don't we have solar power generators? Then, And the reason why we don't have solar power generators is because they're just really difficult to get hold of in the UK. And when they're really difficult to get hold of in the UK, you also need them to be able to power the level of things that need to be powered on a film set, which is really, really difficult, actually, when you consider everything that kind of needs to be done on a film set. So... was little things like that that I kind of thought you know this needs to change this needs to change but we're also still waiting for the technology to catch up another thing for example like which you you know almost take for granted a little bit is that a lot of my films that I was coordinator of were all shot in studios now when you're in a studio it's so easy to control everything it's so easy to get vendors just to you know turn up at the studio to be able to do everything that you need but then what do you do once you go out on location? Well, then it's a completely different kettle of fish because those same vendors, those same trucks who collect your food waste, for example, they may not go out all the way to, to where your location is. So then you have to kind of think out of the box and think, okay, well, what do we do about this? How do we tackle that? And in your head, you kind of think, oh, we'll just, just drive to that location and collect it all. But then it's like, oh, but then we'll lose a truck for the whole day. And then you remember that these food waste people don't work specifically for you. They have like their own businesses that they need to run. So little things like that, you know, you kind of just have to have to get used to and think on your feet about.
0: What was the uh, sort of biggest slip up that you had working on location rather than in a studio?
1: I think Um, it was that, to be honest, I think it was just, um, you know, that sometimes the locations were just too far out and you had to, um, For example, you know, things like water and stuff like that. It was difficult to get water stations out to places that were just way too way too far out. So, you know, you can kind of have to think like, oh, well, what's what's the alternative here? So then you kind of have to send out your water company a good like week in advance to say, you know, drop this much water at that location and then just come back and we'll pay you a little bit extra for the distance or whatever it might be. But then by the time the film shoot starts, you know, you remember there's like a construction crew and there's like security and everything. So sometimes you ended up running out of water um, by the time that the shoot even started. So then you're, you're kind of like up the creek without a paddle. So then you kind of have to do a little bit of calling up and be like, oh, please, you know, it's out for us just this one time, you know, that type of thing. This um, is the fifth
0: time that you've asked me to do it this one time. Exactly.
1: There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. But then like... I mean, the, the one rule I kind of had from the beginning of my career was that, look, just just be nice to people. Everyone that you're working with, just be be nice to them. Uh, not, not specifically because, like, you never know when they might need your help and stuff. But to be honest, you'll never know when, they, you, know, when you might need their help. And, uh, you know, that water company that uh, I mentioned, I've been friends with them for years and years now, ever since my first film. So I kind of know now, having developed the relationship that I have with them. That um, if I call on them for a favour, they'll they'll do it purely because we have such a great relationship between us. So yeah, just be nice to people, and uh, and they'll help you.
0: Just, uh, don't remind me about these sort of water runs because I used to on one of my old jobs, we used to have the um, box water rather than oh yeah big containers. My gosh, they were just a pain in the backside. Like right? as soon as that box is wet, that's it. Like you're done for. What I was going to say as well is in terms of waste on when you're on a location where you built most of the set, what, uh, what do you do all the waste then? And, you know, if you're, let's say your, your office is 100 miles away or something, how do you ensure that whatever they start taking down on the set actually gets recycled properly and has that sort of due diligence to it?
1: So, I mean, there's a few different alternatives to a situation like that. The, the alternative of where you're actually discarding of your set. And the first things that I would do is first look at where you can donate them locally. Uh, if there's pieces of plywood or timber or whatever it might be, um, wherever you are on location, if there's anywhere locally that would, that would take them, then I'd first uh, clear, it, clear it with production to say, look, we can actually donate these pieces of plywood i don't know there's a local school down there or something which needs them to build a build a shed or something like that you know and then mo- most of the times the the productions will just be like yeah yeah cool we're, we're all down for it like this is the thing with the environmental stuff is that people are actually quite enthusiastic about it even like the construction uh, managers now uh, a lot of them know the ins and outs of all the environmental stuff now because it's become such an integral thing that they do so on um on my last film where we had, you know, a few different sets out on location, our construction manager had everything dismantled and sent back to our studios to build the next set, no matter how far it was. Because he he knew the score and said, you know, like environmentally and stuff, we're, I'm not, you know, bringing in new uh, new raw materials and stuff when we already have it out there on location. So he built all of his sets thinking forward that, okay, we're going to be able to use all of these bits at this location, and then we're gonna be able to send it back to the studio to build the next bit. So, as time goes by, your job does become easier and easier because more and more people are actually becoming clued up on the whole sustainability thing.
0: So, let me get this right, he would use like, less for example, timber on one area, and then, like that court memory, use that on another set further down the line.
1: Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, they, they, they transport it to wherever the next location was and use those materials to build the next set. Wow,
0: that's the first time I've ever heard something like that. That's pretty incredible.
1: Well, it all depends on your construction manager as well, I think, um, and how clued up they actually are. Sometimes you can sit down and have like conversations with them. And like I said, a lot of people are actually open to doing the right thing now. And, but the construction manager on that particular film, he was really, really clued in on all of the sustainability stuff. So he said, that's, that's what we do. And he, he's pretty much run his past few films having like a zero waste policy of just not, not throwing anything away into landfill or anything like that. He either recycles, donates or reuses.
0: But I guess it's now, as you said, as the tide's changed, um, you need to be more conscious about these things. Especially when you're working on a you know, 200 million pound film, where just so much goes into these sets and yeah of and course yeah, yeah. some of the backlots on some of these films where you just see like yeah we built a whole town here and it's just like wow i wonder how much this must have cost in terms <laughs> well
1: i i remember on my first film i remember my first film there was a costume assistant really good guy who we, we became good friends uh, on the film as well and um there was this one particular set which was like front of um front of like this huge castle but it was just like the door area and it had been built in the stage and it was absolutely beautiful i mean like you look at this thing and it was just like the most incredible looking thing you'd ever seen and then the day came to strike the set and the you know the main doors were like wide open and i kind of looked in and there were like people deconstructing it bulldozers like running into it all of that type of thing and this costume assistant who is a good friend of mine he was just stood uh, at the front of the stage as the doors are wide open, just had a cigarette in his hand, smoking a cigarette, just looking at this thing being demolished. And without even looking at me, you know, we, I just stood next to him and he just said to me, it's a bloody weird industry we work in. Isn't it? <laughs> I was just like, yeah, couldn't have said it better myself.
0: Uh, it's one of those industries where they just, you have a complete array of different people working with so many different skills. And it come, does come in handy when you have, you know, you have a zip breaker on your jacket, you have a, you know, somebody in costume, you'll be able to sort you out, no problem, or got a construction problem at home, you can ask somebody in another department. It is just, it's nothing like it, and it's really hard to explain to someone. Uh,
1: I, always like, you know. I always say to myself that actually, like, you know, when you're, you're everybody says when you're in a situation where you're... Uh, stranded on a desert island and all of that stuff like what would you do and stuff like if a film crew ended up getting stranded on a desert island I guarantee you they will make something better on that desert island than was there previously like the amount of talent and skills that people have uh, amongst film crews it's like utter dream teams a lot of the time
0: there's also just the creativity that people have for these certain ideas yeah, I, I like to think that you know, if you read a script and then somebody's like, "Yeah, this is not going to be my idea. This is what I'm going to create," and you look at it and you just think, like, in my mind, I just thought like a stick figure, and you've built this whole thing, and you're just like, Whoa. "Definitely."
1: And this is definitely why you get paid some
0: bucks, I guess. Do you still do your uh, environmental coordinating, or have you moved on to another? Topic? So.
1: Yeah, I, I moved on. I moved on. Um, so on my last uh, film, as solely as an environmental coordinator, I kind of felt like I'd taken the job as far as like it could go, and you know I don't I really don't mean to say this in in an arrogant way, but like I I felt like I'd created a workflow and a system that was you know bulletproof basically, and I just thought, well, do you know what this model now i i I can leave that model for somebody else and and teach them about what's you know what what's to do and what's not to do and all all of that stuff so you know i'm i'm all i'm all for giving giving back to like the next you know people coming up and stuff because i know how hard it is to get into the industry and stuff so yeah I, i mean i i helped somebody else get into that position you know taught them the ropes and stuff and so i just kind of thought I've taken the environmental thing as far as, as far as it can go really, because it's never going to get any bigger than being a coordinator on a feature film in terms of the, the position in environmental. Because you always answer to whoever is overseeing environmental at the studio. And so, you know, I kind of just thought maybe it's time for a bit, a, a bit of a change for me. I've taken the position as far as I can take it. I've handed it off to the next person. And so, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing something different now. Um, so on my, actually on my last film, they gave me uh, the, a position of being an assistant production coordinator, which again, like I, I was kind of like, what the hell is this now? <laughs> I was like, what's, what's an assistant production coordinator now? But within that, I was kind of overseeing various, various different things, environmental actually being one of them. So I was still, you know, overseeing the environmental stuff, just not having as much of a hands-on approach. Uh, but it was for a different studio, so it was a completely different system. But one of the jobs they actually gave me on that was doing uh, clearance coordinating which again i was like you're coming in what now like what the hell is this and i did clearance coordinating alongside doing environmental and a few other things on that movie but i actually really started to enjoy the clearance coordinating and then when i finished on that movie the uh the art department and the set deck department were all moving on to another film and they were like well well, look do you do you want to just like come with us and and be our clearance coordinator because you know we think you did a pretty good job for us on this film so why don't you come on to the next one and, and do that? So I just thought, you know what? It's a new challenge. It was for a new studio that I hadn't worked for before. It was at a, a new studio location-wise that I'd never worked at before as well. So I just thought, why not? New, new challenge, new, uh, new environment, new department. Why not? What does a
0: make coordinator do? And how important is that role on a film?
1: So I hadn't realized just how important it was <laughs> when I first took the job. In a nutshell, what a clearance coordinator does is that they are a, a liaison between the studio and the creative departments. When I say the creative departments, it's basically anybody who creates anything original that is going to be seen on screen. Uh, so, primarily, the ones that I work with are your set decks, art departments, uh, VFX, costumes, uh, and and where it's applicable, uh, vehicles departments. So, essentially, what you do is that the art department needs to create an original piece of art. For example, that's going on screen. I then go to the studio and say, "Hey, studio, this is the piece of art that um, the art department have created." They will then go <laughs> away and research all of that <laughs> stuff. Sorry, that was my theory. That's so, sorry, I'm you're
0: totally laughing at that.
1: So they will then um, go and research all of the original artwork that has been created uh, by by that department that's going up on screen and check whether it's legally clear to be able to use for our film, hence it's called the clearance department. That's in a nutshell what it actually is. Um, So you're, you're always submitting stuff for review, the studio will review it, they'll come back with questions, comments and stuff like that. I'll then take that back to the department who will provide that information. And it's that kind of back and forth until the studio actually give the green light and say, okay, that, that piece is clear to use.
0: What would happen if you haven't had something cleared, you know, for example, a Coke can that you have on the set, or if you use the design that somebody else has created.
1: So, I mean, those two situations, for example, a Coke can being on, uh, being on the set isn't necessarily a problem if it's used in a way that isn't clear for us to use, then the studio will either try and clear it retrospectively, which they don't like doing, which I can completely understand. Or in the worst case scenario, they'll just say, look, we can't use that shot. Or you have to CGI it out or whatever it might be. And uh, what was the second thing you said with the... say
0: say it was you used a design or a poster that's used in the film and it's actually
1: done by somebody else so worst 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 case scenario if something is in the film it hasn't been submitted for clearance and it gets into the final cut and the film gets released for distribution let's talk about like absolute worst case scenarios there will be A legal case and somebody will get sued and the studio will have to pay out millions basically um that that's the that's the absolute worst case scenario but having said that a lot of a lot of these studios do put like things in place so that stuff like that doesn't happen um they'll rigorously go through dailies they'll rigorously go through footage and everybody who's looking at it myself included kind of has an eye for it at a certain point to say look this this is something which could be a clearance issue what is this and that's where, you know, you kind of, it's, it's half being an artist and half being a detective. is what I would say that the job is. You're kind of like Columbo, like, you know, going through, the, uh, going through the, the, the different channels to find out exactly where this like bit of art came from or what the reference was for it and all of that type of stuff. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's fairly clever people who are, who are doing it, who actually have the eyes and the ears to be able to spot that stuff. But like I said, worst, worst, worst case scenario, if something like that does happen, then yeah, there, there, would, be, there would be legal ramifications for it.
0: Going through your sort of clearances, do the studio, or let's say you're working on a studio film, do they have pre-existing relationships with companies uh, that they can just be like, cool, oh, yeah, you can use you know, a Mac, for example, like yeah, don't worry about that, you don't need to chase up this company, we've already got an agreement with them.
1: So I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't have a pre existing agreement before the film starts shooting, but they would have somebody uh, working with the clearances and product placements and stuff like that who has relationships with people who work in those companies. So let's just say Apple for an example, a product placement person or a clearance person would say, "Oh yeah, I know Jenny from Apple, uh, you know who works in their marketing department. I'll give Jenny a call. She'll be fine with it." And then before the film starts shooting, Apple will be one of those companies who is like a certified vendor that you can use their products in and stuff like that. So there are people out there who, you know, have those relationships with those companies to be able to do all of that stuff.
0: What has been the sort of, uh, well, the most difficult thing clearing on your job and who do you answer to? Is it, uh, somebody in the production office or is it an external figure?
1: I would say I answer, I answer to the studio primarily. Um, so you'll have, uh, you know, a, a main clearance person who works within the studio who you're kind of dealing with on a daily basis and so far i've worked you know two films where i've done clearances and both the people that i worked with at the studio did things in a completely different way so again it just depends on them and their personality and stuff and and what they prefer i like people who are who are thorough who kind of go through everything and you know with, with a fine tooth comb because obviously you know as we said we don't want anything slipping through the nets so all of that stuff i guess is just what you kind of what you kind of develop as time goes by but primarily i'll answer to the studio and then i suppose the heads of the departments that i'm dealing with uh you know within your costumes and makeups art department set deck the heads of those departments i'll, I'll always try and keep a very close relationship uh with all of them and then the department that i actually deal the most with is usually the graphics departments because the graphics departments are the ones who are creating the most original artwork for the film and it it ranges from anything from like a poster in the background to like you know a a pendant on somebody's uh, or lapel or something like that you know they'll, they'll create so much original artwork that is you know ranges from the biggest to the smallest so uh, the graphics departments are usually the ones that I deal with the most. So the, the lead graphic artist uh, is the one that I kind of try to have the closest relationship with. And I do, weirdly enough, think of myself as an unofficial member of the graphics department. And I think the graphics department that I work with, they would see me as an unofficial member of the graphics department too. I'm like their wingman, basically. Are
0: yeah, you just basically shoehorning yourself in uh, because you're a one-man band and you feel a bit lonely without any other...
1: And deep down, I'm an artiste.
0: okay. What are your sort of biggest pet peeves when you're a clearance coordinator? You know, somebody is it usually if somebody's using something quite late on? or Or if it's something more like, oh yeah, I need this, you know, we shot on this yesterday, but this has only come to our attention now.
1: Yeah, that that's annoying. That's hell of annoying. That's hella annoying. Yeah, it's it's happened. It's happened to me a few times where they've already shot something and they've just said, "Look, we just totally forgot to submit it for clearance." The my biggest pet peeve is them not passing on uh, the relevant or the proper or the complete information. That's that's probably my biggest pet peeve because if we need to get something cleared and it needs to be turned around very quickly, let's say like we're shooting uh this scene tomorrow and we need to clear uh the design on this wallet that's an original design and i'll send it through to clearance and then clearance will say to me uh what's the references for this design and i've sent through the references and then they've said to me oh yeah by the way there was this one more reference that we forgot to send i'll be like oh you know just sent to me the first time it just saves us so much time and stuff so I suppose as well, like working in our industry, you become really uh, versed in the most efficient way of doing things. So time and efficiency becomes like a second nature to you. So anything that lacks efficiency drives me up the, up the wall.
0: And what sort of document do you present for people to clear with? How do you lay it out specifically?
1: So what I'll do is I'll submit to the studio uh, and and like I said, every studio does things differently. But what I tend to do is I'll submit to the studio uh, a a kind of submission package. So I'll I'll submit like a document with information about what it is that we're actually trying to clear, all the relevant information, how it's going to be used in the film, blah, blah, blah. And then submit the original piece of artwork uh, or the original design or costume or whatever it might be along with uh, references and stuff. So it becomes like, one one complete submission package ends up consisting of a few different things. And yeah, like I said, just making sure that all the relevant information that the studio need is all in there so that we can get it cleared as, as quick as possible.
0: Do you, do you have uh, any battles with the studio in terms of how they want things done or how you do things? Um, especially if you want to be sort of efficient and thorough with everything that you do.
1: I suppose like battles probably isn't the right word, but yeah, um, battles, but, uh, but yeah, did, yeah we, we have a few back and forth. Yeah, we have a few back and forth discussions because a lot of this comes down to interpretation of what is a high risk item and what isn't. So the, the departments creating the original artwork might see things from a completely different perspective to what the clearance departments at the studio see it as. The, um, the art departments might think, well, you know, it just, it's for two seconds, it's in the background, it doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. Whereas, you know, the studio might think, well, hold on, even if it's in the background, it's still enough for us to have a possible legal claim on it. So that's the, that's the kind of tightrope that you have to walk is kind of making each other understand each other. Do you know what I mean? Because on the one side, they're looking at it from a legal perspective one side they're looking at it from an artistic perspective and you've got to be the one in the middle that kind of you know keeps them both uh you know both at ease
0: have you ever had any sort of legal trouble or stuff like stumbling blocks when clearing things um, especially if it's something that's too close to a design
1: no so far no oh, no nope. okay that's, i have not
0: that was
1: nice and easy um, no, no, i do my job mate you know what i mean <laughs> i don't have no issues um no so far so far no but then again, like, that's because the people that I've been working with so far and all the departments are so high caliber that again, they already know all of this stuff with all of the clearance stuff. So um, on the film that um, I'm working on at the moment where we had to, we had to pause production because of, the, because of the coronavirus, you know, that with, with that and with all the rushes and stuff that came back from that, the studio said to me, there are no clearance issues with this. Like everything has been cleared so yeah good job so
0: yeah is that a, so uh, far so good is that, a, is that a nice pat on the back or do you feel quite relieved that it's just like what, all right i'm doing i don't know if
1: thing. it's a pat on the back for me specifically i think it's more and more of a pat on the back for the for the departments because it just means that they also understand the process and what what needs to get cleared for sure i'll take a pat on the back if somebody's giving it to me why not right,
0: there's a question there's a question that's sort of written down from something that you mentioned right at the beginning uh, where you said you were the only Asian working on a on your mm. job after the sort of many years that you've been working in the industry and diversity has become a big talking point. Have you seen anything that's changed, or are you seeing sort of more
1: more mixture of people coming through? I suppose I have seen some changes, um, change in the right direction, got to be said. However. Um, it's it's not enough, in my opinion. Um, I think that definitely more needs to be done. I've actually worked on a film previously, which um, every person of a diverse background, you know, they, they love to use the term BAME, you know, Black, Asian, multi-ethnic, or whatever it stands for. I, I don't know, I hate that term. But, um, you know, everyone from a BAME background, we we actually could count on one hand. And at one point we actually all stood together in a circle and said, this is the BAME circle now because all five of us were stood in a circle. So it has gone from, you know, actually being pretty, pretty poor to, to being decent. But then again, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for things to change. Uh, I'm waiting for things to get better. I'm waiting for them to hire, hire not just more diverse, but to hire younger as well. I think that sometimes, uh, you know, with, obviously all due respect to people who have worked in the industry for a long long time I do think that real change especially what we were talking about before with all the environmental issues I think younger people tend to be more aware about all of the environmental stuff than than the elder people are because obviously they they stand to obviously lose the most out of the whole situation with the the planet and climate change so I do believe that when it comes to the environmental stuff, hiring younger and hiring more diverse is actually what is going to move the film industry in the right direction. It does need to change because the more, the more diverse we get, the better stories will get told, I, I personally think. And you look at all of the stories which are coming out now on things like Netflix and whatnot, all of the stuff that is really big, and they are very, very diverse. I mean, that series that just came out recently, Unorthodox, about the, uh, the Jewish girl, um, and her life which was all uh, the, the whole thing was in Yiddish pretty much you know stuff like that you know would, stuff like that would never have got made like 10-20 years ago you just have some executive going oh no it's not in English no one, no one will make it no one will understand it but you know if, if there's room for that and you know that was a fantastic series great stories that can be told then you know there's no, there's no telling what the British film industry could produce because we are such a diverse country and there are so many stories that make up the fabric of what the uk is so if we start telling our own stories we start telling diverse stories you could have some ma- amazing amazing content out there so that's what i'm hoping i'm hoping it all it will get better i actually remember for the first studio that i worked for my my boss out uh, out in la when i became coordinator she would come over and visit uh, every now and again uh, once mostly once the films had finished just to kind of you know check up with production how the production went and all of that type of stuff and uh and she was a she was a black woman from uh well obviously american um i think she came from detroit but i remember her saying to me sitting me down and, and saying to me once and this has always stuck with me when she said this um she said to me make sure if you are working an office job in the future make sure you dress really well And this was at a point where, like you know, I was wearing like you know just t-shirts and jeans and like you know all of that type of thing. And she said, you know, I understand you're doing a job where you get dirty and all of that stuff right now. But you know, if you ever work an office job, make sure you dress really, really well, like better than you would dress like when you're going out. And I was just like, why? You know, and me, I'm like I said, I'm a minimalist, so like my uh, my wardrobe, you know, consists of one pair of jeans and one (laughs) t-shirt. And what she said to me was that she said, because the next Asian kid who walks into the studio, who is scared, who is like their first day, who doesn't know anybody else and all of that stuff, the exact same position that you were in, when that Asian kid walks into the studio, they will see you. They will see a smart, dressed, sharp-looking Asian man. And they'll look at that and think, do you know what? I'm going to be all right. And that's always stuck with me. That's always stuck with me. I'm, and it's always something that I've carried forward uh, with me is that, you know, the way you dress is one thing, but it's also just like the way you hold yourself. And I think that it is a bigger, a bigger thing in the film industry in the UK for, for a black or an Asian uh, man or woman to hold themselves in a certain way so that when the younger generation eventually gets there, you will be able to tell them that, you know, you'll be all right. You'll be all right.
0: Do you have a few follow on questions in regards to your answer? Do you think there should be more done to sort of set up organizations to hire or diversity hires and what do you think is the best way to sort of go about it?
1: So I was, I was asked this question once before, um, about, about quotas. Uh, you know saying like what what if the UK film industry had a quota where do you kind of stand on that and stuff you know and in all honesty it may not be the most popular answer but I don't necessarily think a quota will be that much of a bad thing for a period of time like especially if your aim is to get more uh, more of a diverse workforce in I don't I don't really see what the problem is for at least for some period of time maybe not maybe not for good but you know, this may be a, an old school mentality to, to have, but I also believe that, you know, the cream is always going to rise to the top. You know, I, no one wants somebody in their crew just because of their background, you know, where, whereas you could just hire any other person who will work much harder. But that, in our industry, it has a real funny way of being able to cut out the people who can't quite hack it. And I think that, you know, when people get into the industry with the work rate, with the hours and all of that type of stuff. It's not for everybody. And so some people will benefit from a quota system, whereas they wouldn't, wouldn't have done previously. And those people will stay in the industry if they can hack it and if they've actually got the passion to stay there.
0: You're mentioning about uh, the various sort of stories that people can tell, especially you know, from all the sort of different backgrounds people are from. I understand that you're into directing and writing as well. Um, and I've seen a couple of your shorts. Does a lot of your work contain stuff from your background and your experiences? And how do you sort of get both worlds to sort of mesh together?
1: Yes, I mean, so far, like all of my work has, you know, all, all of my feature film scripts that I've written, you know, are kind of roughly to do with like Asian, Asian themes or rather, you know, the characters are just Asian. Uh, and this is something that I think that uh, is the biggest issue. Uh, you know, I, I'm speaking specifically from an Asian perspective on this, obviously. I think that the problem is that Asians on film and TV within the UK, I'm talking specifically, have become a genre. And it's like, you need to be part of that genre. So the weird thing is, is like Asians get lumped into like a category. So you can only see an Asian on TV doing specific things. One is being a comedian and the other is being a terrorist Um, and there really isn't anything else in between. Or if you're a woman, you know, it's either a terrorist again, or, you know, a battered wife. And it's like, you you know, you're never, you're never anything else other than those things. And it's like, where, where's like, uh, you know, just the rom-coms with just Asians being like, you know, the, the, the main focus or where's the dramas just with Asians being the main focus. But, you know not necessarily having you know their race or their culture be the defining thing about them because you know believe it or not Asians do you know all of the other things that everybody else does it's just that it never gets seen in any other way on film and tv and so I suppose like with all of my films that I'm making there are films that I have done that are a very Asian specific storyline and background and stuff but I also just want to make stories that are just good stories but just happen to have Asians in the lead roles.
0: When sort of having Asian sort of roles, what else do you incorporate into it? Do you also have a sort of soundtrack in mind and costumes, but also how would you present your themes to somebody who's not from
1: that sort of culture or walk of life? Do you know what? I I think that there's two perspectives that you could have on that. One is to welcome an audience into this world who isn't used to it so you know you specifically make it clear that you know these people eat different foods and listen to different music and think a different way and all of that stuff and the other way of of thinking about it's just like do you know what no like this is what it is and you figure yourself out i mean i'll give you an example um my last short film that i that I shot and completed was a, was a film called Mountain and Light, which was uh, about, uh, it was a heist movie and it was about this, this diamond called the Kohino diamond, which is the, uh, the diamond that's currently in the middle of uh, the Queen Mother's Crown in the, uh, in the Tower of London. And the actors, when we were talking about it, we were rehearsing uh, shots and stuff. One of the actors said to me, but, but aren't you gonna have a white character in this? Um, and I was just like, no and then he said but then how are white people going to be able to follow it and i was just like that is such an interesting way of thinking about it from an actor who's actually like asian himself that and you know i'm sure this has been developed through auditions that he's done and stuff like that that we're trained to think that we must explain ourselves to a wider audience because otherwise they just they won't get it rather than us just existing in this world and welcoming the audience in. My, my, my script that I've written recently, which is hopefully going to be my next short film that I'm going to shoot, is, uh, is a love story. And I sent it to the actress, uh, who I really want to do it, who also acted in, uh, in my last short film, In Mountain of Light. And she read it. And, you know, she she said to me, and, and the, the characters in there don't, you know, I don't, specify what race they are I don't specify their names it's it's literally just like it's just husband and wife in in the script and she read it and she said yeah it's so good it's great you know I really like it and everything so I was like oh great great and then at the end she said you know I'd be really interested to see who you actually get for these roles and I was like why do you think I've sent it to you and she was like oh did you not just want feedback and I was like no I want you to do one of the roles in it she was like, do you know what? Because you didn't specify what race the people were in the script, I automatically assumed that they were white. Which was, for me was just like, that, that is literally the crux of the problem right there. Because what she said to me after we had a conversation about it was that she was like, but, you know, at auditions, I'm constantly being asked to portray a role of an Asian woman, but make it really Asian. Like, you have to project your Asian-ness.
0: What does that even mean? Well, what does that
1: even mean is the question. That's the thing. That's the thing is, what does that even mean? Isn't
0: that sort of borderline
1: offensive?
0: Yes. You know, to be like, project
1: your it's like, okay. You have to go like, in it, bruv, in it, fam, and all of that type of stuff. Like, you know, you can't just have a character that is just a character that just happens to be Asian. And I think that that's what I want to try and tackle with my next short is to just do a love story between two people who just happen to be Asian.
0: I'd like to wrap this up. But I'd like to get my guest the opportunity to ask me two questions. and well, I'll say anything they want to an extent. Um, and the floor is yours, Ash.
1: Cool. I think the main thing that I think we want to talk about, we haven't actually talked about like, our camaraderie at all on this podcast so okay, you know yeah. I think you know let's 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 take a minute to you know discuss Candle Corner because I think that's kind of like our thing now that we've created isn't
0: it? Yeah it's it's weird because we basically got once office got bigger we basically got shoved into a corner. Um, we did. Away from everybody else and from the action effectively and I guess we kind of got left our own devices in terms of just left it alone to do work. And because it was just two of us so far away, that's where we sort of bonded and decided just to get some scented candles just to spruce up our area. I guess I'd say make it more welcoming, but no one ever really came to visit our end because we were the other end of the More world. for
1: us really than anything else. It? I think the thing is I had read a book at that time, uh, which is called a really good book called A Year of Living Danishly. I remember, which was about uh, this woman who's uh, from London, and her husband gets a job at Lego in Denmark. And uh, she goes to Denmark to live with him for a year. And she talks about all the things that like were great about Danish culture. And one of the things that she talks about on there was candles, because you know, they have this, uh, they have this term hygge in in Denmark, which is all about uh, coziness and stuff. And candles were a big part of that. So it was like, yeah, let's get some candles. I think you mentioned, like, let's get some candles for our area. And then I was like, you oh, know what? it's funny you mentioned that. I just listened to this audio book and they were talking about how, you know, therapeutic candles are. And I think that we were both uh, in, at a point as well where we were kind of just looking for things that could help us, like, keep calm and be zen and chill out and stuff like that in, the, in our little corner. So, yeah, candles became, like, our thing. We're such macho men, aren't it? We? <laughs> well,
0: no, I think there's also... Um some of the smells as well that you can get honestly that you smell it it's like I've never smelled anything like this and like it's not overpowering it's just like oh okay this is something that I can really enjoy and if I've got a nice moment just there kind of filling up the uh, not airwaves but you know just making it all a little bit more different and uh, having a nice feel to it compared to I don't know just a normal candle don't get me wrong I, I like a normal candle but I don't know. The scented one just gives it a bit more, gives it an edge, doesn't it? And it's just there's so many smells that you can choose from and sets that it's just like cool. Let's go with these. Let's try this one today. Actually, I don't want to, this one's too intoxicating, so I'm going to try this one. And then you kind of tailor them to your own sort of fit. And then if somebody doesn't like it, then well, they're not welcome in the corner.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I think yeah, we we kind of made that little. Little corner, yeah, our own little zen-like space with nice smells and stuff. Usually, coffee and candles is what our our corner smells like. Yeah, I suppose the other, the, the other question uh, I wanted to ask you is that I've been uh, one of the other things early on that we bonded over was uh, our our joint love of uh, Martin Scorsese movies as well. Um, and you know, we watched uh, Goodfellas together at uh, at the studio, and. I've been going through Scorsese's uh, back catalogue while I've been, uh, been on, uh, on lockdown. So I suppose like if you had to pick just one moment from a Scorsese movie, which for you is, you think like just the greatest single moment in any Scorsese movie, what would it be?
0: You know what, the most obvious choice is that one shot in Goodfellas where he goes to the restaurant. That's the most yeah, the one obvious. Shot you know you had to sum up Scorsese in one shot it'd be that but there's so many he's got so many films and so many underrated ones I think my favorite of his films is is Cape Fear
1: oh I just watched that the other day actually it's on uh, it's on Sky Movies and
0: I feel like that is such an underrated flick um and for people to sort of really enjoy I don't know it doesn't get talked as much And I think the best scene would be the um, when they're on the boat, and uh, Robert De Niro is is the judge with Nick Nolte, and it kind of cuts back and forth, and Robert De Niro breaks the fourth wall, and he's staring at the um, at the audience, and I think that was probably one of the best, one of his best moments, and just because all all the chaos that's going on, and like finally De Niro is caught up with them, and Basically, unleashed unleash his, uh, his how ferocious he is, and you actually get a sense of like, like, this guy's a monster, and that film should get some more love. And another scene I want to pick too because it's
1: go on, go on, why not? Like, why not?
0: Is raging bull when De Niro is uh, punching himself in the face? Again, he's he, as a boxer, he's unhinged, but he's just so he just he can't control himself and he's just so pent up with rage um, and again that film's incredible to think that they shot him in black and white in a time where people didn't want to watch films in black and white
1: um, yeah
0: is another sort yeah just incredible i think he he's probably one of the few directors that i'm just really excited for film even if it is something like silence where it follows two priests um trying to spread the word of god and trying to yes yeah, great priest. film yeah yeah um, it, there's just something really special about his films and how he sort of involves music, uh, movement and the his collaborations of actors as well. Something like The Irishman where you, you're in for, an, for almost over three hours but you can put your feet up and know that it's going to be an epic and it's going to be incredible. Um, I know that myself and a couple of others in the office always quote Goodfellas and... Uh, yeah,
1: it's like a thing in the office, yeah, the quoting of Goodfellas.
0: And I think it's also just all the side characters in his films as well, uh, especially Goodfellas, where there's just so many memorable people who are there for a few seconds. And you're like, oh yeah, that guy, this guy. And then you see them in other things. Well, that is the end of this episode. Is there anything you want to plug, Ash?
1: plug well i suppose if there's anybody out there listening who is into indian cricket uh do a search for the Bharat Army podcast b h a r a t Podcast, um and uh give it a listen give it a whirl why not thank you ash and uh yeah
0: take care and make sure you all look after yourself thank you for listening please subscribe rate and review this podcast And tune in next week, where we'll have Alex Frost dropping by to talk about the world of production accounting.